Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 25th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to return to our rapidly progressing commentary on the Gospel of John after a two-week break presenting other topics. I think that the um, the program last last week on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was actually timely and would fit right in with this series of presentations. If I ever publish my commentary on John as a book, I will probably make that one of the additional chapters. In our last presentation from John chapter 13, which was part 34 of our commentary on this gospel, we spoke of the intrinsic character which all people possess, even comparing it to the structure of a water molecule and the natural behavior of its basic components, the hydrogen and oxygen atoms which make its creation possible. In one place in that presentation, I said, this may seem to be conjecture, but every man has an inherent nature, and often, contrary to that nature, every man is conditioned by society to behave in a certain manner. But eventually, when confronted with an appropriate situation, it is a man's intrinsic character which will surface and take control of his actions and determine his fate. There I went on to use Peter's description of the fate of Lot as an example. The children of God are called sheep for good reason, as they are generally docile and follow along with the flock wherever they are led. The proof of that statement is easily verified in the transformation of Western society over the past few decades. Until recently, sodomites, or fags, or homosexuals, and miscegenators, or race mixers, were the outcasts of society, and in many places, laws had prohibited both acts. Now, these sins are not only publicly acceptable, but they are even publicly applauded, and those who commit them are admired rather than scorned. Only a few short decades ago, they were scorned. Thus we read in Jeremiah chapter 50, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill to shithole. They have forgotten their resting place. I'm sorry about the interpolation, but I just can't help it. For that reason, at the day of their judgment, their shepherds shall receive the greater punishment, as we read in Jeremiah chapter 25. And the slain of Yahweh shall be at that day from one end of the earth unto the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, 
neither gathered nor buried. They shall be dung upon the ground. Howl ye shepherds, and cry, and wallow yourselves in the ashes. Ye principal of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and of your dispersions are accomplished, and you shall fall like a pleasant vessel. And the shepherd shall have no way to flee, nor the principal of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds, and the howling of the principal of the flock shall be heard. For Yahweh has spoiled their pasture, and the peaceful, the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of Yahweh. However, there is also another dynamic. Ultimately, the sheep are in the hands of their God, and it is he who gives them the shepherds that they deserve when they merit chastisement, or faithful shepherds when he determines that they have suffered sufficiently. The Old Testament is replete with examples of this, especially in the period of the judges and up to the time of David himself. Thus we read in a messianic prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 23, where Yahweh promises, And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them, which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith Yahweh. So when a ram rises from among the sheep to accomplish something good for them, that is also by the will of their God as we read in Amos chapter 5. <clears throat> when the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him shepherd, seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders. While many of the historical details are apparently out of our reach, this must have been fulfilled when Assyria was destroyed sometime around 612 BC. The children of Israel, known as Scythians and Chimerians, had a large hand in that destruction, in that destruction. I'm sorry, I'm tripping all over myself. Now, as John chapter 13 progresses, we shall observe an example of one significant characteristic of the sheep, which is their altruism and their empathy, having a tendency to project their own values onto others, even when the others do not possess those same values. These traits of the sheep even impede their ability to recognize the goats among them. None of us have escaped this. Sheep should not imagine that the goat shares 
and values, which they do, where the same sins of ancient Judah were recollected in the words of the prophet Zechariah, speaking of what had happened to Judah and of the time following the Babylonian captivity. Yahweh said, Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats, for Yahweh of hosts had visited his flock in the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. The Old Testament explains that there was a problem with goats among the sheep in the days of the ancient kingdom period. In its historical sections, this is evident in the presence of the Canaanites who remained in the land of Israel. And it is described in Hosea chapter 5, in Jeremiah chapter 2, or in Ezekiel chapter 16, among other places in the books of the prophets. Now here in John, we shall see that in spite of everything that he had told them, not even the apostles of Christ could recognize the goat among themselves. Even John had not realized all of the implications until long after the events which are recounted here had transpired. This fulfills the prophecy that Yahweh God himself, this is an example of the fulfillment of the prophecy, I should say, that Yahweh God himself would have to judge between the sheep and the goats, as we read in Ezekiel in chapter 34. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures? And you have drunk of the deep waters, but ye must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden down with your feet, and they drink that which ye have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle because you have thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the diseased with your horns till ye have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock and they shall no more be a prey and I will judge between cattle and cattle. In other words, one sort of cattle was destroying the other sort of cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken it.
this being a messianic prophecy, the sheep and the he-goats may be distinguished by a full understanding of the gospel of Christ. Here in John chapter 13, the apostles are celebrating the Passover feast, which is now famously referred to as the Last Supper. Christ had washed their feet and explained to them that they should serve one another in that same manner. Then he began to speak rather ominously and said, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but in order that the scripture may be fulfilled, he eating my bread has raised his heel against me. Right now I say to you, before that which is to happen, so that you may believe it when it happens, that I am. Truly, truly, I say to you, he receiving the ones whom I should send receives me, and he receiving me receives he who has sent me. Now we shall continue with John's gospel from that point in chapter 13, from verse 21. Saying these things, Yahshua was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one from among you shall betray me. The students looked at each other, being puzzled concerning whom he speaks. As we have already elucidated, John had actually written this gospel many years after the fact, late in his life while he was in Ephesus. In part one of this commentary on the Gospel of John, titled The Word Made Flesh, we cited Irenaeus in regard to this, along with other witnesses. Irenaeus was a Christian bishop in Gaul who wrote in the middle of the second century. In book three of his treatises, Against Heresies, he said, John, the disciple of the Lord, who, who also had leaned upon his breast, we will refer back to this later, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. Of course, Ephesus is in Asia Minor. John was in Ephesus many years after Paul of Tarsus had his ministry there. So concerning the actual writing of his gospel, when John recorded these events, he had knowledge that he did not necessarily have even while he was here having dinner with his fellows at the time when these events had actually taken place. When these events took place, if John knew about whom Yahshua was speaking, he would, have been, he would have been able to answer Peter's question, rather than passing it along to Yahshua. So where John says that the students were puzzled, he must have also been puzzled. But John did not record every aspect of what had happened here. So, we will turn to Matthew's account as he wrote from a different perspective what things he thought were important. And that is an important aspect of the value of having multiple witnesses. In Matthew chapter 26, we read, 
And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in a dish, the same shall betray me. This situation reveals an intrinsic characteristic that was shared by the apostles of Christ, which is the altruism and empathy which the children of God naturally have towards others. Judas was among them for several years, yet they could not imagine for themselves that Judas was the devil among them. The information in the parenthetical remark found in John chapter 6, where the apostle explained that Christ was speaking of Judas when he said, yet one from among you is a devil, was very, very likely not known to John until after this time. But he added it later because by the time he wrote his gospel, by the time he wrote this account, he was well aware of the truth. As Christ had said in verse 19 of this chapter of John, right now I say to you, before that which is to happen, so that you may believe it when it happens that I am. Likewise, Judas was a goat among the sheep, but the apostles did not know that until long after the necessary events to which Christ was referring had actually happened. Observing this phenomenon, we continue as John refers to himself. There was reclining in the bosom of Yahshua, one from among his students whom Yahshua loved. I find it quite incredible that so many supposed scholars would doubt the identity of the disciple whom Yahshua loved with John, as it certainly is John. As we have seen in our citation from Irenaeus, he was also confident that it was John. But John neglected to mention his own name in any of his writings until the Revelation, where he mentioned his own name five times. This certainly is John the Apostle, who was too humble to mention his own name here. John is also the unnamed Apostle in chapter 1 of this Gospel, who at the beginning had heard John the Baptist testify of Christ along with Andrew, and he is also the unnamed disciple in chapter 18 of this gospel, who was somehow known to the high priest. That is not unreasonable, as John must have been with Christ during the many confrontations which Christ had with the rulers in the temple, which only John had recorded. Ostensibly, many of which only John had recorded. Ostensibly, at that time, his young age had allowed him to escape accusation. Elsewhere in his gospel, in chapters 19, 20, and 21, he refers to himself in the same manner that he does here, continuing to speak in reference to himself. He writes, Therefore, Simon Peter motions to him to inquire 
about whom it could be concerning whom he speaks. Simon Petrus in the Christogenia New Testament. It seems that the disciples had a collective empathy for one another, imagining everyone in the group to be of the same inherent character. So Peter is anxious to know the identity of the betrayer. Not being able to comprehend that it was Judas, and beckons to John, asking him to find it out. As we have said, where John next passes Peter's question along to Yahshua, we may discern that John could not have known it either, or John would have answered Peter's question for himself. This helps to establish that John did not really know that it was Judas who was the betrayer and the devil until this time and after. So in that manner we read, Then he reclining, reclining thusly, the ancient Greeks reclined on couches at meals. They didn't sit in chairs at a table. So where we had that word reclining, the verb is anaclino. It actually means to recline or to lean against something, right? For reason of John's youth, it would not have been considered unusual for the apostle to have been reclining thusly upon the breast of Yahshua, as a boy may have affection for a fatherly man. And as the early Christian writers inform us, John's having been an elderly man in Ephesus after the death of the emperor Domitian is consistent with the narrative which is presented in the testimony that we have here. For example, if perhaps John is only 16 years old here in 32 AD, he would have been 80 in the year that Domitian had died in 96 AD. This also explains why John was close to Yahshua throughout his entire trial and crucifixion. But John was never arrested, even though the high priest knew him. The narrative and the reports in the early Christian writers being consistent in this regard, we are more confident that this unnamed apostle certainly is our John, the writer of both this gospel and the Revelation, another thing which countless scholars doubt, scholars who are actually fools. Now Peter's question is answered, although we never learn why Peter did not ask it for himself. Yahshua replied, It is he for whom I shall dip a morsel and give it to him. Then having dipped a morsel, dipped a morsel. He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It seems that by answering in this manner, at this point, Christ did not want to utter the name of Judas. While Luke's account of the Last Supper is very concise, that mark is very similar to Matthew's account, as we have already cited from chapter 26 of his gospel. As Matthew had described this event, at least some of the apostles were wondering if it were they themselves who would be his betrayer.
not understanding that the betrayal was imminent, that it would happen this same night, in fact. So while John asked this question of Christ on Peter's behalf, the others must have overheard both the question and Yahshua's reply. Therefore, Matthew recorded the statement by Yahshua that one of you shall betray me and described the bewilderment of the apostles before recording the answer by Christ where he said that he that dippeth his hand with me in a dish, the same shall betray me. What Matthew had described must have been from his own perspective of what had transpired up to this point which John now records and where he says in reference to Judas, and after the morsel, then the adversary entered into him. Therefore, Yahshua says to him, that which you shall do, do quickly. As John describes it, the adversary, or Satan, entered into Judas at this point. But much earlier, as it is recorded in John chapter 6, Christ had called Judas himself a, I'm sorry, Christ himself had called Judas a devil. And as the scripture informs us elsewhere, Satan is a devil. So perhaps it was Judas's own inherent nature which had taken control of his thoughts and actions. As we had earlier said, that eventually, when confronted with an appropriate situation, it is a man's intrinsic character which will surface and take control of his actions and determine his fate. Satan is not necessarily an evil spirit which seizes men at some point in time for some evil purpose, as this passage is often interpreted. Rather, the fact that the label Satan is used to describe a collective entity is clear in Mark chapter 3. There we read, And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. So it is apparent that Satan rises up against himself when the collective enemies of God are divided one against another. In Luke chapter 22, we read an account of things which transpired shortly before this time, where the apostle had written, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then, now this is a while before this time, at least several days, maybe a week. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them unto him. In Matthew chapter 26, 
that event is described a little differently. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Earlier, here in John chapter 13, we read, And dinner taking place with the false accuser, or devil, already putting into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, that he would betray him. And then Yahshua arose to wash the feet of the apostles. In reference to Luke chapter 22, where we see him describe Satan as having entered into Judas, we would assert that this happened when the thought arose in the mind of Judas that he could get money for betraying Christ. Since the expensive ointment had been a subject of contention for Judas, and he would rather have sold that in order to steal the money. This John had explained when he later wrote chapter 12 of his gospel. And he said, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. It is also apparent that John could only have known at a much later time that Judas was a thief, just as John only later knew that Judas was a devil, and as John only learns here that Judas would be the betrayer of Christ. So according to Luke, Satan entered into Judas days before these events described here, where John had said that Satan entered into him. Therefore, we would assert that where John wrote that the false accuser or devil had already put it into the heart of Judas that he would betray him, that this was a way of explaining Judas's intrinsic character. The apostles of Christ did not have that same character. And as we see here in John chapter 13, they were not yet able to comprehend why Judas may have been different. So it is also evident that where they appear to have been attributing his actions to an external factor, to Satan, they may have only been attempting to explain why Judas had acted according to what was actually his own inherent nature, which they themselves did not yet understand. While at this time John seemed not to know that it was Judas who was the devil among them, which Christ had mentioned much earlier, after all of these things had happened, and by the time when he wrote his gospel, John surely did understand that Judas was a devil because he was able to explain it 60 years later or 50 years later in his parenthetical remarks. Yahshua Christ came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. In the Old Testament, we might have a hint or two of people that are devils, such as the occasion with Job, but very many people just as easily see that devil as some kind of spirit being, which simply isn't necessary to understand the story of Job 
And I would contend that it simply isn't true, that that devil was also a person, a person who appeared three times yearly in the temple with the children of Israel. That's manifest in Job chapters 1 and 2. So the Old Testament does not teach with any degree of clarity that there are devil people. Those things were kept secret from the foundation of the world. They were revealed in the gospel of Christ. So the apostles could not understand how Judas could be a devil and how Judas could be evil and have these different thoughts that were opposed and contrary to their thoughts and to Yahshua Christ. Judas was born a devil, but the fact that devils were born was not revealed until the ministry of Christ. John writes later in his first epistle to warning his readers to beware of every spirit, to try or test every spirit, because not all spirits are from God. And John was not talking about disembodied spirits. He was talking about people. He was talking about embodied spirits. So by the time John wrote his epistles, he understood that there were indeed devil people, people that didn't come from God. You can't understand the entire Bible unless you understand the parables and revelation of Christ in that regard. The fact that John did not understand these things here at this time is more clearly elucidated as the record of John continues. And we see that at this time, John certainly did not know that Judas was the devil among them, where he wrote, but not one of those reclining knew for what reason he said this to him, for what reason Christ had told Judas, that which you shall do, do quickly. When he wrote this, John must have had himself in mind, as well as all of the other disciples, since he could not answer the question which was posed by Peter a short time earlier. Now John records the resulting conjecture of the disciples, as they could not yet understand that Judas was a devil and a traitor, in spite of the fact that Yahshua Christ had already indicated to them that Judas would be his betrayer. So he writes in verse 29, For some supposed, since Judas held the case, that Yahshua tells him, by the things of which we have need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Therefore, having taken the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. As a digression, among the ancient Greeks, teachers of philosophy were supported by their students, by those who learned from them, and frequently also by wealthy patrons. Without such patrons, without such support, most teachers could not be teachers. They would be working at ancient Walmarts. Teachers who work for wages in state-certified schools are usually not teachers. 
Rather, they are public indoctrinators. The fact that the disciples as a group had a common treasury kept in a case, or perhaps in a bag, because the word can have either meaning, seems to indicate that many of the disciples and students of Christ had also helped to fund him and his disciples in that same traditional manner. Obviously, Judas fulfilled the position as treasurer of the group, and as John had also described in chapter 12, where he wrote that Judas had the bag and bear what was put therein. How typical of a devil to play the role of treasurer. At this point, it is once again evident that the apostles themselves could not yet have imagined that Judas was evil by his very nature, even in spite of the fact that Christ had told them, as it is recorded in John chapter 6, have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Judas was not a devil because he betrayed Christ. Judas betrayed Christ because he was a devil. He was a devil in the first place. But instead, the apostles projected their own values onto Judas. And they all imagined that he was departing from them to do something for their collective good rather than to do something evil. Only when Judas's actions were completed and his fruits had become manifest was his tree made known. For this reason, Christ had said, for the tree is known by his fruit, because he must have been referring to those trees of Eden. Being a devil, Judas was certainly not of the tree of life. It may have been timely that I had presented my paper identifying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil immediately before making this presentation. We may also assert that it is at this same point where we read in Matthew's account of the blessing of the bread and wine and the mention of a new covenant. And as, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new testament in the King James Version. It should be covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. So here it is evident that Christ had waited for Judas to depart before he blessed the bread and the wine, and before he spoke of a new covenant and of the kingdom of God. Therefore Judas, being a devil, did not have the opportunity to share and to hear these things, as he had already departed to do that for which he was destined. Now, knowing that Judas was on his way to betray him, and what would result from that act, Yahshua makes another exclamation. Then when he went out, meaning Judas, Yahshua says, Now the Son of Man is magnified, and Yahweh is magnified in him, and Yahweh magnifies him 
himself in him and magnifies him immediately. I have a translation note here. The Codex Alexandrinus, which I've been mostly omitting from these presentations. I used to include them all, and it was far too tedious. The Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text begin a new sentence with the start of verse 32. And having a different form of one of the pronouns, they would, they would read verse 32. If God is magnified in him, then God magnifies him in himself. Notice the switched around words there. And magnifies him immediately. The King James Version follows this reading, which is why I'm mentioning it. The distinction between him and himself in our translation of this verse is deduced from multiple uses of the same pronoun, autos. However, for the second pronoun in the phrase, Yahweh magnifies himself in him. Some manuscripts, including the majority text, have heatu rather than autos. And that's more explicitly himself. That's why the pronouns are switched around between the King James reading and the Christogenia New Testament reading. If heatu actually existed in the other manuscripts, the older manuscripts, we would be compelled to read Yahweh magnifies him in himself. That makes no sense to me. It makes much more sense that Yahweh magnified himself in Christ because Yahweh was Christ or Christ was an aspect of Yahweh. Yahshua Christ would be magnified or as the King James Version has it, glorified in his death and subsequent resurrection. In Isaiah chapter 44, we read, Sing, O ye heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest and every tree therein. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So Yahweh magnified himself in Christ. Children, Verse 33, Yahshua Christ still speaking. Children, shortly still I am with you, or perhaps shortly yet. You shall seek me, and just as I said to the Judeans, that where I go, you are not able to come. To you also I speak now. Where Christ had been confronted by his adversaries, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, we read, Then said Jesus again unto them, reading from the King James Version, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and you shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he said, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Where Christ said, if you believe not, he was not offering them a choice as to whether or not to believe. But instead, he was citing a matter of fact. He also told them in chapter 10, 
but you believe not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. So, if they are not his sheep, they cannot believe him, and they are destined to die in their sins. They cannot avoid that fate. This presents a quandary for identity Christians, as Christian identity has been taught for these last 50, 60, 80, 100 years. But it's easily resolvable. It is often said in Christian identity circles, and even in Protestant circles, that only the ancient children of Israel could sin because only they had the law. That is not true. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, Paul of Tarsus said that for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So we see that while anyone can sin, sin is not imputed where there is no law. Only Israel was given a law, and therefore the enemies of Christ would die in their sins, but not necessarily because of their sins. Christ coming to redeem Israel from the law and cleanse them of their sins, as he had promised explicitly, only the children of Israel can live in him. So the Apostle John wrote in chapter 2 of his first epistle, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So Christ told his adversaries why they could not go to where he would be, which is because they were of this world and from beneath indicating that they were not of God and that they were not born from above, for which reason they would never be able to see the kingdom of heaven. While he tells the same thing to his disciples here, once Judas has already gone away, that they could not go where he was going, a few verses after this one, he tells them, but you shall follow later, where it is evident that they too were born from above. The Greek word, technion, refers more explicitly to a little child, which is the reason for the reading found in the King James Version, little children. This is the first time in the Gospel where it is recorded that Christ addressed his disciples directly as children. The things which Christ had said here, and in the three chapters which follow, must have made a deep impression upon the young John, since many years later he expounded on them at length using much of the same language in the letter which we know as his first epistle. Now to continue with verse 34. I give to you a new commandment, that you should love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. For the children of God, all truism can be a characteristic, but it is also the one quality which Christ demands of those who would follow him, besides obedience to the commandments. However, all truism is only demanded for one another, that you should also love one another. For one's fellow sheep, 
And the children of God should not extend their altruism to goats. Altruism and empathy are closely related, and empathy is the perceived ability to share the feelings of another, to feel another's pain, to use colloquial language. Before desiring to help someone, which is altruistic, one must imagine that help is needed, which requires empathy. The disciples of Christ thought that they could share the feelings of Judas Iscariot, imagining that he was departing to do them some good. But they did not know that he was a devil and that his feelings were something quite different than what they had expected, having departed to do them evil. Because they had empathy for him, the devil was able to take advantage of them until the day on which he thought he might find it more profitable to betray them entirely. Perhaps as many as 60 years later, in chapter 3 of his first epistle, John would write, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loves not his brother, John, is using Judas as his point of learning this. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. These statements, as well as much of the balance of the content in that epistle, were all based directly on the testimony of Christ found here in this gospel. So much of the epistle expounds on what John had learned from Yahshua as it is reflected over the record of these few short days. Now he records the conclusion of Yahshua's statement. By this they shall know that you are my students, if you would have love for one another. The same thing that John writes later in his epistle. For the same reason, John wrote many years later, the part of what he had just cited, which says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In the context of the writing of his first epistle, the phrase, the beginning, must be a reference to the beginning of the spread of the gospel of Christ. But the commandment is not actually new. Although it may have been new to the disciples and to the Judeans in general, Originally, it is found only in the priestly law, in Leviticus chapter 19, where we read, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. Evidently, the admonition to love thy neighbor as thyself didn't catch on in the Old Testament period. Or perhaps because it is not found in Deuteronomy, then it was neglected. Of course, furthermore, we have here the fact that one's neighbor is defined as one of the 
children of thy people, the children of one's own people. Christ had already counted among the commandments the admonition that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In his discourse with a young man, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, which occurred at least a few weeks before this time. In this same regard, John also wrote in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light, part of which is the understanding that there are devil people all around us, and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. And of course, there's no expectation of Christians to love devil people. That's just not required. Simon Peter says to him, Prince, where do you go? Yahshua replied to him, where I go, you shall not be able to follow me now, but you shall follow me later. Verse 36 of John chapter 13. Here it is evident that the disciples of Christ could not have been from beneath, or they would not be able to follow Christ at all. Rather, they too must have been born from above, as Christ had explained to Nicodemus near the beginning of his ministry. For that reason, John wrote in his epistle that whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. As Luke informs us in his gospel, Adam is the son of God, and if one's seed is in him, he is of the race of Adam. Therefore, he is born from above. Peter made reference also to this in 1 Peter chapter 1, explaining that one must be born of incorruptible seed and not by corruptible seed, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. One doesn't have to be born in the word of God. He must be born by the word of God, which means according to the law of God. It's speaking about the circumstances of one's birth. And that word seed, which Peter used, is parentage. It's a different word. Incorruptible parents are Adamic parents. Peter will receive the balance of his answer in the discourse which follows. We won't see it until we get to chapter 14. First, Peter causes a digression. Peter says to him, Prince, for what reason am I not able to follow you right now? On behalf of you, I shall lay down my life. Peter's expressions were indeed altruistic, according to his inherent character. But he was not able to live up to fulfilling them. And of course, Yahshua knew that and had immediately expressed it in his reply. 
in verse 38. Yahshua replies, You lay down your life on behalf of me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock should not crow until when you have denied me three times. For this reason, Christ had come, as he explained in John chapter 10, in order to lay down his life for the sheep. Surely, Peter could not abrogate the purpose of God by laying down his own life for Christ. Once before this, Peter had pretended to do so, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 16, that from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again in the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. As it is explained in Revelation chapter 12, in the beginning Satan had attempted to abrogate the purpose of God. And Peter, being of the mind that he could counter God's will, makes himself an enemy of God, for which reason he was called Satan, although he did not sin past the point of mild correction. As we have also explained elsewhere, Peter was the most stubborn of the disciples of Christ, and the Gospels and Acts of the Apostles contain several examples of that, where Peter had to be shown or told something three times before he realized his error or received correction. But this also seems to be a component of the intrinsic character of the children of Israel in general. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, they were told, Understand, therefore, that Yahweh thy God gives thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Again, Yahweh appeals to them as it is in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Circumcised, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. But Peter was especially stiff-necked. As the record shows in Luke chapter 22, three times while watching on as Yahshua Christ was suffering at the hands of the Judeans, in the evening before his crucifixion, this later this very evening, Peter had denied knowing Christ to those around him. Then Luke wrote, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crows, thou shalt deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Here, in the final chapter of the Gospel of John, not right here, we're only in chapter 13, I'm sorry. After the resurrection, when Christ appeared to his disciples, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee as they were fishing. Three times, Joshua had asked Peter if he loved him. And when he answered each time in the affirmative, Peter was told by Joshua to feed my sheep. On the third occasion, Peter was clearly agitated. So Christ had told him, when you were young, you girt yourself and walked about wherever you wished. 
But when you should grow old, you shall extend your hand and another shall gird and bring you where you do not wish. Perhaps this indicated that Peter would remain stubborn until his final moments. Later, Peter was shown the vision of the four-cornered sheet while at the home of Simon the Tanner. And he had to be shown that vision three times just to begin to comprehend it. Many years after that, Paul had issues with Peter for his hypocrisy, where he refused to eat with the uncircumcised when Judeans were present, as it is described in Galatians chapter 2. <clears throat> that would have been contrary to what Peter was shown three times in the vision on the four-cornered sheep. So with the crow of the cock, the vision of the sheep, and the command to feed the sheep of Christ— at least three times did Peter have to see or experience something three times, and he still sometimes did not comprehend it. Otherwise, Paul would not have had to admonish him for refusing to eat with the uncircumcised. Perhaps this is why Christ had called Simon, the son of Jonah, Petros, or stone, right from the beginning as it is attested at John chapter 1 verse 42 as it was his inherent as it was inherent in his nature to be stubborn there are people mostly of the roman catholic or eastern orthodox variety who cannot stand any criticism of the apostles of christ but the fact of the matter is that when they are above criticism then they are idols they become as gods and we should not practice idolatry, nor should we worship elements of the creation of God. They are only elements of the creation of God. The apostles were certainly good men, worthy of our respect, but they were men, just like us. They had misguided empathy and misplaced altruism, just like us. And they could be stubborn, or in the case of Thomas, overly skeptical, just like us. It took time to learn things, and sometimes they made the same mistakes twice, just like us. When we see, when we see the patterns in their behavior, and we can recognize their mistakes, then we can learn even more from them than what we have learned in their words. And for that, they become even more valuable to us. Here we conclude our commentary on chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. When we commence with chapter 14, we will return to Yahshua's answer to Peter's question. Prince, where do you go? Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.